Follow that. All right. Amen to that. Good morning, church. <clears throat> Turn with me in your Bibles, if you've not already, to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. It's true, isn't it? That old saying, last words are lasting words. If you've ever lost someone and had the opportunity to talk with them a short time before they knew that they were going to pass, you know that those moments have a way of becoming emblazoned in the mind. And they have the potential to really shape your development as a person. In my own experience, my dad died 14 years ago after a long battle with illness. And when the time came, and we knew that he had only a matter of hours left to live, he began calling each of his loved ones to his bedside individually. He wanted to communicate his love to them one last time and leave one final word with each of us. Now, this was 14 years ago. And my wife will tell you that I can't remember what someone said to me 14 minutes ago. But still, I can remember that event just as clear as ever. I could tell you how the room was arranged. I could tell you what the lighting was like there. I could tell you what the weather was like outside that day. My, my mom... I remember, I can envision her motioning me to my father's side. and Of course, I can remember receiving those final words from him. It's a sober moment. It's really a profound moment with the potential for profound impact. And as you consider just what a profound moment that these type of events are, I would call your attention to the fact that that is precisely what we have here in 2 Timothy. Here we have the last words that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. And he seems to recognize that these will be his last words. He writes to his young son in the faith, Timothy, who's pastoring the church that Paul had planted at Ephesus. Paul is in prison yet again in Rome. And he knows that this time it doesn't look very promising on the other side of his imprisonment. He, he's in some of the worst conditions that you can imagine. Locked up as an old man, weathered from a life of difficult ministry. He's sharing very limited space with serious criminals. Shackled up in a dark, damp cell without sanitation or plumbing and he awaits his sentencing and he tells us plainly in chapter 4 that his time of departure had come and I can't believe that the profundity of last words was lost on the Apostle Paul imagine that he was perfectly aware of the impact of these kind of words. So as we begin our study in the book of 2 Timothy, we should approach it 
with the appropriate level of sobriety from start to finish each week when we come to study the Word, we should recognize the sobriety of these words that he leaves to young Timothy and to us. We need to recognize that these are the dying words of God's most influential missionary and theologian in human history. And as is typical, this dying old man in the book, he begins evaluating for his son in the faith what has really been worth it throughout his life. After a a life of suffering for the gospel, and now that life and suffering for the gospel has landed him on death row, we expect that the apostle would share with Timothy and with us what was really worth the sacrifice and what wasn't. And what we find Paul saying at the end of his life, having experienced so much suffering for the sake of the gospel, is that it was all worth it. More than that, it's clear that his deepest desire is that the gospel be preserved and passed on to the coming generation, no matter the personal cost to Timothy. And this comes out in his instruction about what's necessary to preserve the gospel for the coming generation. Now, we've already read the chapter in its entirety, so let's pray, and then we're going to dive right in to see what instruction Paul gives us concerning the preservation of the gospel message. Pray with me, will you? Father, we are grateful this morning to come to your word. And as we do so, Lord, I do pray that you would illuminate it for illuminate your word for us. Lord, come now and by your spirit, we pray that you would cause your word to pierce the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, Lord, that it might shape us and form us into better believers, better Christians, better Christ-like followers. Father, we pray that you would make us, by your grace, worthy of the calling that you have called us to. Let us walk in a manner worthy of that calling. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Paul begins this letter to his young protege a little less than personal. In fact, it sounds like many of the other letters that Paul has written in that he claims his apostleship here, speaking to Timothy. Now, one would think that given the relationship between these two men, that this wouldn't be necessary. But what we see here is Paul wanting Timothy to know that however personal some of the elements of this letter may be, it is nonetheless a divinely inspired message coming with apostolic authority. And he emphasizes this to Timothy, reminding him that his apostleship comes from God, by the will of God, in verse 1. He wants to convey to Timothy that he was to take this letter, Timothy was, as the authoritative word of God and respond to it accordingly. And as the apostle begins, he clearly has a a multi-generational gospel vision in mind. You can hear it, this thrust 
from Paul in verses 3 through 5. Look there with me at verses 3 through 5. He says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. I remember your tears. I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. Why is he filled with joy? Because, keep reading, he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. And now I am sure dwells in you as well. So you can hear Paul referencing the faith that he inherited from previous generations, and he brings to mind the same reality in Timothy's life. The truth couldn't be any more obvious. No one comes to the faith without someone else sharing the gospel with them. If you're a Christian today, it's because someone was faithful to share the gospel message with you. And Paul near death now, picks up on that to tell Timothy, you, my son, need to be faithful with the gospel in the days ahead. So Paul spends the rest of this letter outlining for Timothy how to ensure that the gospel is passed on through the generations to come. And in chapter 1, he issues three commands to that end. He, he gives us three commitments to be made if the gospel is to be preserved for the next generation. The first is a commitment to cultivate the gift of God within. The second is a commitment to the gospel life. And the third is a commitment to right doctrine. The first charge that Paul gives to the young pastor is to commit to cultivate the gift of God within him. Paul tells Timothy, for this reason, for what Reason? Well, the faith that he is sure dwells in Timothy. He says, For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Here, Paul reminds Timothy that every Christian possesses a spiritual gift. And not only do they have a spiritual gift, but they are to make use of that the best that they can. Now, the gift that Paul is instructing Timothy to make use of here is the gift of proclaiming the gospel through preaching. We know from both this text and in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that the way Timothy received his spiritual gift was rather exceptional. The details are debated, but it seems that in the first century, apostolic age, the Spirit of God worked through the Apostle Paul and some other apostles in the laying on of hands to convey the gift of gospel preaching to this young pastor. Yet, as time had gone on, and the ministry at the church at Ephesus had worn on Timothy, he had apparently begun to neglect the preaching of God's Word. Now, one could legitimately ask the question, well, what does that have to do with me? Paul's clearly giving Timothy a command, but I'm not Timothy, so can I just ignore this? While I understand the question, the answer is no. No Christian is free to ignore this command from Paul to Timothy. You see, while the immediate context is between Paul and his young protege, the Holy Spirit's inspiration of this text causes the message to transcend just Paul and Timothy's 
relationship, and it gives meaning and application for us today. So what is the relevance for us today? Well, there are many, but we only have time to unpack a couple of these points of relevance for the modern Christian. The first, and perhaps the most obvious, is to those that share the role of Timothy in the modern day. That is, those who occupy the pastoral role today. Paul's words are no less applicable now to those who preach the good news than they were in the first century. For any man gifted by God with the ability to teach and preach the word, there should be an unwavering commitment to developing and deploying that gift. Like fanning a flame to provide the oxygen needed for a strong blazing fire that gives light and heat to all around, so also the man gifted to preach should feed that gift with all the elements necessary to preach with passion and illumination. Paul tells Timothy that God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Because apparently, Timothy had begun to shrink back from boldly declaring the gospel and all of its implications. And with his last words to his son in the faith, Paul tells Timothy... That won't do. It would be too detrimental in getting the gospel to the coming generation. No one who's tasked with preaching the word must, one who is tasked with preaching the word must do so with boldness and with clarity. They must go to the pulpit. And in going to the pulpit, they must bring with them the heat and the light of God's word. The heat of conviction of sin and the warmth of eternal comfort. They must bring with them the light that exposes the darkness and the light that reveals the goodness and greatness of God. As a part of God's design, preaching is one of the clearest and most consistent proclamations of the gospel to the world. So Paul charges Timothy to serve in the spirit that the Lord supplies. One that is characterized not by fearfulness concerning the gospel, but of such confidence in the gospel that the preacher is empowered to withstand scoffers and skeptics. Not only that, but... The spirit that God gives enables a a confidence in the gospel that doesn't produce arrogance, but rather a sincere love, he says, and an attitude of self-control toward those being ministered to. Now, there's an application of this charge to Timothy that extends beyond the modern day pastor to all modern believers as well. The the command to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you applies to every believer, actually. In reading this, we must understand that a key element of getting the gospel to the next generation is developing and deploying the spiritual gift that God has set within each of us. Now, it may be obvious as to why this was true for Timothy. After all, he was tasked with preaching 
the gospel at the church at Ephesus. So if the church is indeed the pillar and buttress of truth, as we read in 1 Timothy, then it's understandable why one tasked with preaching the gospel would need to commit to sharpening and using that gift. But what about those not gifted to preach, which constitutes the majority of the church, by the way? How is it that the use of their gifts is critical to preserving the gospel message? Well, to answer that, we need only consider what the apostle says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. There we read, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And from that we understand that not only does each believer possess a specific gift of the Holy Spirit, but they are to employ it in service to the church body. And in this way, the church functions as it was designed and it's made strong. And this helps to preserve the gospel for the next generation in multiple ways. First, in the use of these varied gifts, we actively remind one another of gospel truths, be it of gift of exhortation, a gift of generosity and giving, a gift of mercy. They all communicate something to us, something to us of who God is and what He's accomplished in His Son. But also, beyond just strengthening the individual members of the church, the use of these gifts strengthens the institution that is the corporate body. And in so doing, the use of these gifts, the, the use of your gifts in the church preserves the gospel by fortifying the pillar and buttress of truth that is the church, you see. You see, your, your gifts are not unimportant, brothers and sisters. Each one of them enables the church to press on in her mission of making the gospel known to the world and passing that gospel message on to the next generation. Therefore, we must all commit, Paul says, to cultivating the gift that God has given us. But there are other commitments that must be made if the gospel is to be preserved. The second way Paul says that the gospel is preserved is through a commitment to the gospel life. A commitment to the gospel life. Look with me at what Paul says in verse 8. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Timothy had apparently grown weak, not only in his commitments to preaching, but also in the content of his preaching. Paul had to admonish Timothy to not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Now, we shouldn't take from that that Timothy was outright denying the lordship or the divinity of Christ or anything like that. But he was avoiding something significant about the Lord Jesus and what it meant to follow him. And Paul was quick to say, Timothy... If you don't correct this, you will obscure the gospel message and you'll fail in passing it on 
to the next generation. What was it that Timothy was apparently shying away from? It was the gospel reality that glory only comes through suffering. And by saying that glory only comes through suffering, I I don't mean simply that trials make you stronger or, or, or that hardships make good times sweeter. I don't mean anything like that. Non-Christians can agree with those ideas. What's intended here is something more profound. What Paul reminds Timothy of is that real glory, eternal glory, in likeness to Christ, only comes by way of suffering for the kingdom. And it's clear that this is what's meant by charging Timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel about our Lord, because it's followed in the text by another negative command, namely, to not be ashamed about the lowly state of the apostle. And then we have a positive command that, like the Lord Jesus and the apostle Paul, Timothy too should share in suffering for the gospel. This principle that in the kingdom of God, glory only comes through suffering, that that exaltation comes through humiliation, that principle runs throughout the text of Scripture. But it is perhaps nowhere more evident than in the life of the Lord Jesus Himself. In order to accomplish the eternal plan of God in the redemption of all the elect, Jesus had to condescend into human history and endure suffering. In Luke 9, he states the necessity of it plainly. In Luke 9, we read the words of Jesus. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then, relevant for you, in the very next verse, he tells his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would lose, uh, excuse me, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The message could not be any clearer. If we are to be united with the Lord Jesus in heavenly glory, we must first be united with the Lord Jesus in earthly suffering. Brothers and sisters, oftentimes we convince ourselves that we can affirm the gospel message and yet avoid the persecution that comes along with it. This is nowhere more obvious than in our culture that we sometimes buy into the lie, that we can affirm the gospel message yet avoid the persecution that comes with it. We we begin to believe that I can can thread the needle. I I can be a Christian and it not cost me anything at my workplace or in my friendships or in my family relationships. When the testimony of Scripture is unambiguous, a life saved and shaped by the gospel will cost you something. And what Paul is saying here in verse 8 is that we must 
commit to embracing a life of suffering for the gospel message, or else we will obscure that gospel message. If we expect to live lives of ease and pleasure while professing Christ, one of two things is going to happen. One, you'll be smacked in the face with the realities of persecution from the world. Or worse, number two, you'll find yourself not actually worshiping Christ, but self. All the while, you're claiming the name of Christ and at the same time going along with worldly expectations and attitudes, claiming the name of Christ, but refusing to tell your boss, no, I won't do that because that violates a biblical morality. All the while, if you live that sort of hypocritical life, you are obscuring the gospel message. Rather than preserving it for the next generation, you are ensuring that the coming generation gets a watered-down version of the call of Christ and the claim that He makes on the lives of those who are His. Because you are communicating something with your actions and your expectations. You're communicating that the message of the gospel doesn't entail the lordship of Christ over all of your life, just some. So Paul says, don't conceal the realities about the Lord Jesus or me, and you yourself need to share in suffering for the gospel If the Lord Jesus had to endure the cross for the salvation of sinners, who are we to think that we should escape suffering for the kingdom of God? And it's important to note the manner in which we are to share in suffering for the gospel. It's not in our own strength. It's... This, what Paul's telling us here is not a call for more white-knuckled Christianity where we just grit and bear all the suffering and persecution that comes to us. No, we are to, look there at the text, suffer for the gospel by the power of God. Paul clearly puts this in the category of something that goes beyond our ability to do in the flesh. And I'm convinced that the key distinction between the suffering of the world and the suffering of Christians for the faith is joy. It's joyful suffering. That's why Paul says in Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings. That's why James calls believers to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You see, joy in suffering is what marks spirit-empowered suffering. And it's not some Christian masochism or anything like that. It's simply taking comfort in our union with Christ as we remember what He said. You remember? If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. The ability to joyfully endure Scoffing and rejection and insults for your faith is not something we're naturally equipped to do. 
That's why Paul says that the motivation for this kind of life is nothing other than the free, sovereign grace that was given to believers in eternity past. Look there at the end of verse 8 into verse 9. He says, Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So Paul tells us that our serving and our suffering are both motivated by the sovereign grace of God in salvation. We serve because He owed us nothing and yet has graciously given us all things in Christ. We suffer and suffer joyfully for the gospel message because having done nothing, not a zilch to contribute to our salvation, God Purpose before the foundation of time to save his children from the suffering of his wrath in hell. So we gladly endure the finite suffering. Real suffering, certainly, but finite suffering of this present age. Because we know that there will be no suffering in the age to come. We must, in our lives, embrace suffering for the demands that the gospel places on our lives. We must do so in order that we don't obscure the gospel promises for the generation to come. We must make clear that the gospel nowhere promises escape from suffering in this life, only in the life to come. Still, there's... One other commitment the Christian must make if we are to preserve the gospel for future generations. We must commit, Paul says, to right doctrine. The apostle gives one more charge in this chapter to Timothy. If he's going to take up the mantle of carrying the gospel message into the next generation. You can see it there in verse 13. It says, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. This term pattern that Paul uses here is the same word that would be used in the Greek for a a writer's outline or an artist's rough sketch. These tools, the, the outline for the writer or the rough sketch for the artist, these tools, you see, set the guidelines and the standard for the finished product. So too, we are called to commit ourselves to holding on to the doctrinal guidelines, the doctrinal pattern set out in Scripture. One may say, well, my commitment is to Jesus, not to some body of doctrine. You know, the old pious way to say it is, no creed but Christ. But the problem with that way of thinking is that it ignores the reality that everyone has a body of doctrine that shapes their understanding of God. And therefore, because everyone has a body of doctrine that shapes your understanding of God, that body of doctrine shapes your worship of God. Whether you call it doctrine or not, 
whatever truths you have fixed in your mind that help you understand the person of God. That is your doctrine. That's all doctrine is. is a distillation of truths into clear and concise form. And the point that Paul is making here is that if the gospel is to be preserved, if the, if the coming generation is going to be able to know the true Christ, we must commit ourselves to doctrine. But not just any doctrine. Look at the way Paul qualifies what he says in verse 13. Verse 13 says, Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. Paul is not telling Timothy to sort out what he believes about Jesus on his own and then commit to that doctrine. Paul is not saying, just be true to what you believe, Timothy. No. He says, you take the pattern of sound words. In other words, you take the true words that I gave you in the form that I gave them to you, and you follow them. Commit yourself to this doctrine. And we are tasked with the same thing, friends. We are not free as Christians to determine what we want to believe about God. We take the apostolic doctrine, as Jeff was describing earlier, that has been handed down through the ages and we memorize it. We talk about it. We rehearse it with our kids in catechism questions. Why? Well, so that our own hearts will be grounded in the truth. But Paul's point here is for the purpose of passing along an unadulterated gospel to the next generation. Friends, There are people in evangelical churches from coast to coast this morning worshiping with passion and vigor a God of their own making. And invariably, it's because they have followed a pattern not laid out in the text of Scripture. They have emphasized certain elements of his character over other elements of his character in a way that he's not authorized because that's not how he revealed himself in Scripture. So they aren't worshiping the God of the Bible. They're not committing themselves to Jesus over doctrine, and they certainly aren't preserving the faith for the coming generation. They don't even know what the Jesus they profess faith in is really like. All because they refuse to follow the pattern of sound words that we've received from the apostles. In short, they won't commit themselves to right doctrine. Never let it be true for us, church. We are a church that believes sound doctrine. It's a hallmark of Midtown Baptist Church. Praise God. But more than believing it, friends, may we champion sound doctrine. May we commit to it and be characterized by it. Let your conversations be teeming with right doctrine as you encourage one another to have assurance of salvation, 
as you exhort one another to trust in the providence of God, as we talk with one another, pointing each other to the second coming of Christ. The list goes on and on of doctrines that can infuse our conversation and encourage one another and equip one another in the faith. But you get the point. Let us be people. Let us be a community that is committed to and characterized by right doctrine. It is necessary, Paul says, if we are going to preserve the gospel that has called our poor souls to the grace that is in Christ Jesus. As the chapter concludes, Paul provides for us an example of one who embodies these commitments that he says are necessary for gospel preservation. First, he says in verse 16 that all who are in Asia turned away from me, which, by the way, adds to the picture of what a life lived for the gospel can bring. And he goes so far as to call out Phygelus and Hermogenes for their desertion of him. How'd you like to be recorded forever in Scripture for that? But then Paul commends another brother, asking in verse 16 that the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. And why? Well, because he displayed the commitments that Paul has outlined through this chapter. Just like Paul said, we must make use of the way the Lord has gifted us to serve. Onesiphorus used his time, his talent, and his treasure to refresh the apostle, you see there in verse 16, and to serve the church at Ephesus in verse 18. Just as we were instructed that we must embrace the gospel life, Onesiphorus wasn't ashamed to be associated with the apostle, locked up in chains in such terrible condition. Rather, he humbled himself and he served a man that the rest of the world ridiculed and even much of the church had abandoned. Lastly, Onesiphorus was animated by the, the love that is in Christ Jesus, which is a direct result in verse 13 of a commitment to sound doctrine. He actually searched out the Apostle Paul earnestly to render this kind of service to him. Now there's a couple of ways that we, we could respond to the example of Onesiphorus. We could think, well, there's another Bible character that I'll never live up to. Wow, what, what a commitment. He, he must have had next level faith, you know. Maybe it was because he was actually around real life apostles. Maybe that's what made him able to live that kind of life. But that would be to ignore everything about the context of what Paul's communicating here. And that kind of logic is exactly the kind of logic Satan would have you to employ. Leaving you stifled in your Christian walk. Rather, a more appropriate response to the example of this brother would be, now here we have a brother whose, whose name isn't plastered all over the New Testament. He, he seems to be a typical believer in the first century. 
this letter really is the only reason we know he exists. He doesn't seem to be anything special. And yet, Paul says that God has worked in his life to enable him to actually live out what the apostle says are faithful Christian commitments. Far from another moral guilt trip, Onesiphorus should be an encouragement to the normal Christian today. He shows us that by the power that God supplies, we can commit to cultivating the gift of God that He's given us. We are able to embrace the gospel life. And it is not unrealistic to commit ourselves to right doctrine. Praise God for the the example and the encouragement of this brother. Amen? May we follow his example. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful again this morning for the clarity of your word. We're grateful that you have not left us to figure out on our own what it means to live a faithful Christian life. God, we we thank you that you have outlined for us exactly what to do with this gospel you have entrusted to us. Father, may we be a people characterized by the commitments here in this text. And as you make us more into the image of your son Jesus, Father, may these things be ever more true of us. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.